This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? As if I needed to ask, Mark, what the hell is going on? Well, we are today recording this in the first week of a post-Roe America. Supreme Court came down with its decision on Friday. There are obviously for people who are on the pro-life side, including myself, it's a huge, huge moment uh, because it's something that the pro-life movement has been working for for more than five decades. But there are also a lot of people out there who... Are hurting, who are worried, and understandably, they they're they're worried about women's rights. They're worried about their own futures, and there's a lot of anger. There's a lot of very heated rhetoric going on. And you know, I, I'll t- I'll tell you, I was logging on to Twitter. I was out of the country, but I, I logged on to Twitter briefly when this happened to see what was going on. And my friend Leslie Marshall, who is a liberal Democrat commentator on Fox, uh-huh. um, was tweeted something about the decision. Some people started calling her a monster. I weighed in and I said, number one. Leslie's my friend who disagrees with me on abortion. She's not a monster. And two, how is calling somebody a monster going to convince them about the sanctity of human life? The reality is, is that right now the pro-life movement, we have to let the heat level come down and start having a rational conversation about abortion. And for a long time, abortion has been the topic that nobody discussed. You were always told, don't talk about abortion, whatever you do, right? Well, now it's been thrown back into the political world. And so like every other political decision, we're going to have to discuss it and we're going to have to discuss some hard questions and we have to do so in a spirit of charity, in a spirit of compassion and love and have a rational conversation. I don't know if we're going to succeed in it, but we're going to try on this podcast. How's that? Yeah, we are going to try, and 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 I'm happy to hear you speaking like that. Uh, obviously, you know it, it is easier to be magnanimous in victory than it is sure. to be magnanimous in defeat. And I don't think we should uh, diminish the fact that this is a huge defeat for the pro-abortion, pro-choice movement. I don't know what they like to call themselves now. I can't keep up with the politics of this, but I will tell you honestly what has disturbed me so much about watching this debate is not the lack of facts, although it it has become an almost fact-free debate. And it's not even, you know, the vituperative nature of this. You know, this is a country where we've gotten used to people calling each other monsters because that was the the story of the Trump administration. And it has been, and even before that, you're exactly right. It started under Obama, perhaps before. But the reality is that what has really distressed me is the complete and total lack of respect for the rule of law in this country. So uh, just before we came down to, to record this, I uh, I was looking at Twitter as well, and I saw somebody tweeted to Gary Kasparov, who you know, was a noted uh, chess player and Russian dissident, very anti-Putin. What are your lessons for America's young people growing up in an authoritarian, totalitarian regime. And I was like, dude, you know, you don't know what an authoritarian or a totalitarian regime is if you think that the reversal of Roe v. Wade in our Supreme Court is 
authoritarianism. Well, it's exactly the opposite. It threw it back to the states and to the democratic process. Here's a fact, right? 39 out of 42 European nations, including France and Germany, bar elective abortions at 15 weeks or earlier. Some of the restrictions are even sooner, like in some countries it's 12, some weeks it's 10. No country in, in Europe allows it through all nine months of pregnancy like many U.S. states do, right? So the president of France, Macron, tweeted out this, you know, this hyperbolic tweet about the decision on Roe. And he, what he doesn't realize is that his country's abortion laws would not be allowed under Roe v. Wade. You can't bar abortion at 15 weeks. So what this decision has done is it has put us in the global mainstream. U.S. is just one out of seven countries out of 198 countries in the world that allow elective abortions after the 20th week of pregnancy. Two of them are China and North Korea. So this has put us more in keeping with France and Germany than with China and North Korea. Some states are going, like red states are going to bar all abortions, many of them. Blue states like New York right now, they they lit up the Empire State Building when they passed a law lifting all restrictions on abortion up until the moment of birth. Right. That's the difference. And then in between, there are going to be purple states where there's going to be a debate going on what the political feeling is about this. But this is not suddenly barred abortion in America. And the pro-life movement needs to realize is that now we have a challenge, which is you can't do anything sustainable without public support. And so we have a challenge now to convince our fellow Americans of the sanctity of unborn life and why abortion shouldn't be should be restricted. So, um, but that's going to take that's the beginning, not the end. Right. But I will say this, Mark. Bugger off, uh, Macron. You know, it's none of your business what our Supreme Court does. Number one, this country is a federal entity. And so while you're right that, you know, 15 weeks or less, slightly less in, is the norm in the European Union, what we will have instead is not a norm at 15 weeks or less. What we will have is a patchwork where abortion is simply not permitted in now 18 states. In states where there's political support for doing that. Exactly. Where and the, the and I agree with you. And what I have said to the many people who I've argued about this with is, you know, look, your quarrel is with democracy. Your quarrel is yeah. with our Constitution. And I understand that. And and I, you know, I don't I don't agree that abortion should be banned. If I were in a state where abortion was banned, I would vote. Uh, I'm not an abortion voter, but I would certainly consider voting the other way. And, you know, that is up to those who are pro-choice to, to try to make a that, sale. Uh, want to do uh, where the politicians want to make abortion available up until the ninth month, ninth month of pregnancy. Yeah, no, that's absolutely disgraceful. And that's crazy. And and you and I know what that is. That's murdering a baby. And so the only argument is just when. Yes, but but setting that aside, but setting setting that aside, because that is the head of the pin that the, all of these angels have been dancing on for 50 years. But the issue is that abortion will be inaccessible for those women in those states. And that is something that has upset a lot of people. If it, if it was at 15 weeks, I think you would still have those people be insane and upset. But having it be barred is something that, that a lot of people, not just women in this country, worry about. And I understand that. And I understand their concern. You want women who feel that they have to make this choice. And it never should be an easy choice, but you want them to have options. And saying go to another state Yes, it's an option, but it's a difficult one. Yeah, the difference between us because you're pro-choice, so moderately pro-choice. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I am, I am in the vast mainstream yeah, of this country. Exactly, and I think that the vast majority of Americans agree with most restrictions on abortion, certainly up until 15 weeks, and some even sooner. The polls show, and so from my perspective, let's take all that off the table. <laughs> right, nine months until 15 weeks. 
then we can have a debate over what should what should be allowed in the 15 weeks. And that's a discussion that we have to have as a country. And that's a discussion that fundamentally comes down to this, because one of the things you just said was the reason you would propose abortion in the ninth month, or I would assume in the sixth month or even earlier at some point down the scale is it's obviously a child. Right. And so when does it become a child and is it a child? That's the fundamental question. I, you know, I used to be pro-choice. I had basically your position, which is I didn't like abortion. I thought that it was immoral, but I understood there were some circumstances under which people might want to have them. And I remember sitting in a dorm room with a pro-life friend. And the moment I sort of became pro-life, because I kept raising all these objections, you know, what about, you know, rape? What about life of the mother? What about these different things? And life of the mother is a separate question we can get into. But he kept saying to me, is it a child? Yeah. He's like, well, then how can you support abortion under most of these circumstances? And, and this is the fundamental thing that we have to get, we get to is that when you accept that it's a child, then all of a sudden these things that seem very clear cut become very complicated because you're not just dealing with, you know, the extreme circumstance. You're also dealing with the fact that there's a human life involved. We're going to have to start having those difficult conversations, weighing those difficult questions because now the states have the power to make those decisions. And it's through the political process and through our debates that we're going to decide what the restrictions are going to be, what are not. And that's the problem. You know, that's the problem. I think that 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 debate that you just characterized is a debate that is worth having and that people of good faith Mm -hmm. should be able to have without being called monsters or fascists or fascists or, or murderers. And problem is or first of all or women haters absolutely yeah. although i i'm not quite sure how you uh, want to talk about birthing people but you want to talk about women <laughs> haters we need to get some consistency in there but you know again understanding how our country works what i've said you know in arguing with my kids and with with others about this is you know our country devolves decisions about life and death to the states our country devolves decisions about vaccinations to the states Our country devolves decisions about the death penalty to the states. Our country devolves decisions about euthanasia to the states. Why are you fine with that, but not fine with the states making these decisions? And again, you know, it stems from a fundamental misunderstanding about what the role of the Supreme Court is. And I really do blame almost everybody on the left and the right on this issue because the court has become the government of last resort in this country. That's a problem of the left, not the right. It is a problem for both sides at the end of the day because we, look, hang on a second. All right. You know, we went to court over Title 42. You know, the right goes to court over plenty of things. The courts have become a battleground and it has imbued the court system with this all-powerful nature that it doesn't have. And I think this is what the justices said. I want to also really quickly talk, because you and I both worked in the Senate, about the notion that these justices who were up for nominations lied, because I think that's really important. Yeah. You're writing a piece on that, right? I am writing a piece on it. I just talked about it on Fox. Um, if Justice Kavanaugh, Well, what's the accusation? So just the accusation so is, and it's coming from Susan Collins and Joe, uh, Manchin. Joe Manchin and some of the others. AOC that, and that a AOC bunch of other. and all the rest of it saying that they lied, that they led the senators to believe that they would never overturn Roe v. Wade. So number one, and that they should be impeached as a result because they lied to the Senate, right, right under oath. Number one, they did not lie. What they said was factual statement, which is that Roe is precedent and that as precedent, it deserves respect under stare decisis and that they would have to review that, but that they cannot and will not tell anybody how they would rule before they've been presented with the facts of the case, which is the basics of judicial ethics, right? So if a senator asked a justice to 
say how they would vote. And that justice gave them a guarantee on how they would vote in exchange for their vote. That would be an impeachable offense. Painting a thing of value, their vote, to get you a lifetime appointment in exchange for promising to vote on how they would vote before you've heard the facts of the case. That would be impeachable if they had done that. Yeah. So if, if the senators are saying that the, they – first of all, they should have never asked the question because they're asking them to commit an impeachable offense. And if they answered it, they would be. Second of all, if Kavanaugh and Gorsuch lied, then so did Elena Kagan. Because Elena Kagan was asked during her confirmation hearings by Senator John Cornyn, do you believe there is a federal constitutional right to same-sex marriage? And she said, and I quote, there is no constitutional right to same-sex marriage, unquote. She then went on the Supreme Court and voted in Oberfell to create a constitutional right to same-sex marriage. So if that wasn't a lie and she shouldn't be impeached for that, then how can you say that Kavanaugh and Gorsuch should be impeached? Well said. Look, and I think that, you know, again, this is what's standing in the way of our ability to have an intelligent conversation about issues that deserve genuine intelligent debate, right? Because, you know, we disagree, but you can't disagree about, you can't disagree about how the Constitution works. You can't disagree about how the founders envisioned that the court would work. Court is not about doing what is right, just to find a great phrase that people love. You know, the court is about doing what's in the Constitution. Yes, exactly. and Regardless and, of what your personal political right. preferences are or policy preferences are. Right. And this is why, of course, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is now getting the crap kicked out of her holy memory because, A, she didn't step down in time for there to be another Democrat on the court because we have a sense of where Roberts would have come down on this. <clears throat> and, B, that she actually cast into doubt the quality of the decision in Roe versus Wade, which she very famously did and which conservatives are quoting left, right, center, center up and down, right, yeah. which is that she said she, she you know, wished that it had been decided in a different way. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, in fact, it was bad law. And, you know, that was the problem. So, you know, I don't know. I, I hope that there will be a strong movement to persuade those states where abortion has been banned that, in fact, some allowances should be made. But You say we <sighs> disagree, but yeah. do we really? Yeah, we do. Well, okay. We, you would support a 15-week abortion ban? I haven't thought specifically about 15 weeks versus 14 weeks versus 13 weeks versus 8 weeks versus 16. Reasonable. But some, but I would support a reasonable, a reasonable cutoff point. Yeah, yes. exactly. So I think we're probably, if you're looking at a nine-month stretch, we're probably, uh, you know, 70% allies right. uh, on this issue. That's correct. Um, but, I'm also and, an ally, and can, but I am also an ally of the rule of law in this country. Yeah. And that's the thing that I find most distressing yeah. is, you know what? disagree till you're blue in the face. If you have to call people names, go ahead. But, you know, calling Clarence Thomas Uncle Clarence, you know, accusing him of being an Uncle Tom, that's just disgusting. That And that, by the way, is racism. Yeah. No, don't do that. So, you know, have a smart debate. I haven't seen one. Have you seen a smart debate on this? Well, we just had. Uh, you and I have had one, but, yeah. So <laughs> no, anyway, we need well, to make one for well, our We have guest. a smart discussion. We have a great uh, guest to come on and talk about this. And you'll have no doubt about his views, but I think he really does a very good job about thinking about how the sides could have this discussion. Robert P. George, who we call Robbie George, he's a legal scholar. He's a political philosopher. Uh, He is the sixth McCormick Professor of Jurisprudence and the director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions at Princeton University. Among his Many, many awards is American Enterprise Institute's own Irving Crystal Award. I commend everybody to go back and listen to his most, most interesting presentation at that beautiful evening. And we're really delighted he was willing to be with us. Here's our interview. 
Robbie, welcome to the podcast. My pleasure, Mark. Good to be on with you and Danny, old friends. It's great to have you here. So you tweeted the other day, I'll read the tweet, pro-life friends, please read Lincoln's second inaugural and be guided by its spirit. Let us not exult over those, our fellow Americans, good people who are sincerely concerned about women's welfare and who see the demise of Roe as a disaster. Malice towards none, charity towards all. Tell me why you wrote that. I wrote it because it's what we need. It's the message to my fellow pro-lifers. We have been struggling Uh, Some of us who are old enough for 49 years, five months and two days since uh, January 22nd, 1973, to reverse what we regard as the abominable decision of the Supreme Court in Roe versus Wade, exposing unborn children to the lethal violence of abortion. And we got a big victory yesterday when finally all that effort paid off and the Supreme Court reversed Roe. But we need to recognize that our fellow citizens who are on the other side of that issue and against whom we have found ourselves necessarily unavoidably struggling are not monsters. They're not Nazis. They're not evil people. And their concerns for the well-being of women who very often do find themselves in crisis situations or in need with pregnancies that are real problems for them, that our friends who are genuinely concerned about that as we ourselves are and should be really aren't our enemies. We're on other opposite sides of a political divide, but these are our fellow citizens and they sincerely are concerned about things that are worth being concerned about. Now, we think they draw the wrong conclusions about that because they would expose the precious, vulnerable, young, unborn children to the lethal violence of abortion. But that doesn't mean that we should condemn them or hold them in contempt or repudiate them or or treat them as our enemies rather than fellow citizens with whom we disagree. And also, Mark, this is an occasion for us to reach out the hand of friendship and say, let's work together in the vast areas in which we do agree. Women who are in crisis situations due to their pregnancies, women who are in need, need our assistance and support. And there are lots and lots of things that we can do. Support the crisis pregnancy centers. Uh, make, make sure that pregnancy is not the basis for discrimination by employers and, and, and others. Making sure that health care and mental and emotional support is available to, uh, to people. Now, we might have legitimate disagreements about you know, what role government has in any of that and what role private initiative uh, should play. But let's, let's work those out and see how we can work together for our common goals. I'm one of those pro-lifers who believes that we have a duty to mothers as well as children and to children as well as mothers. And we should never treat their interests as antithetical or hostile to each other, but we really should love them both. Now let's look for the effective ways to do that, to operationalize that, to love them both. Robbie, it's a, it's a pleasure to have you, first of all, and, and also to hear you say these things, because, you know, as Mark told you before we got on the podcast, I don't agree 100% but I do you know, lament, as we have so, so many times on this podcast, the inability of Americans to come together when they disagree and have a, a rational debate, because I think that, that that would be hugely important. Where do you think that things end up coming down, for example, in the case of rape or incest or the life of a mother? What is the happy middle ground that there should be for the country? Is there one or is there still just a pro-life answer? 
the baseline of agreement, it seems to me, uh, among reasonable people of goodwill really should be, Danny, that elective abortions are off the table or uh, what uh, used to be known as social indication uh, abortions. This is uh, abortion where there is not a threat as a result of the pregnancy uh, to the mother herself, a, a threat to the life or to the health of the mother. And there's a debate, of course, about whether pregnancies resulting from forcible rape belong in that category or not. But that, it seems to me, is the baseline. I think that is where probably something like 60% of the American public either are or could easily be if we had a, a fair and legitimate uh, debate about this subject. I myself believe that it's important to understand that uh, procedures that foreseeably will result in fetal death may nevertheless legitimately be performed from an ethical and not simply from a legal point of view where they are uh, necessary to uh, prevent a grave threat uh, to the mother. So, for example, removing uh, the embryo, developing embryo in the fallopian tubes in an ectopic pregnancy, removing the cancerous uh, uterus even before fetal viability. There, the object of the choice, the object of the act, the reason for the procedure is not to bring about the death of the developing child as such. The death is rather outside the scope of intention, which is why even the strictest pro-lifers, even the, the Catholic Church, for example, does not object to the removal of the embryo in the fallopian tubes or to the removal of the cancerous but gravid uh, uterus, that is the uterus where the child is developing in the uterus, but the cancer requires the removal of the uterus before fetal viability. So I think all of that should be uh, stuff that we can agree on. The hard case there will be the forcible uh, rape case because, of course, the child is innocent, the mother is innocent, too. I myself do not endorse uh, abortion even in the case of forcible rape, but I have never read anybody out of the pro-life movement because they disagree with me about that issue, perceiving the rape itself uh, or the, the pregnancy resulting of the rape uh, from the rape as itself a threat uh, to uh, maternal health. I'm perfectly willing to join arms and hands with pro-lifers who make that exception. The, the Mormon church, for example, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, that's where they are on the issue. Uh, that's where a lot of people who are with me most of the way are on, uh, on that issue. And it seems to me that this is an area in which we all agree that the underlying causes need to be addressed. There is far too much forcible rape. Any rape is too much, but there's far too much. What are we doing about that? What are we doing to protect women from that? What are we doing to create a culture where that doesn't happen? I mean, even on campuses, I've been shocked working in the university disciplinary system. I've been shocked that that sort of thing happens, even at places like Princeton University, something I would not have believed prior to becoming a professor. Now, what is the culture that enables some men to think that that's okay, that they can do that. We need to address that as well. And that too is common ground. Yeah, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I just have a, I have a quick follow-up because I'm honestly genuinely interested in what you think and sometimes what Mark thinks. Usually not, but sometimes. <laughs> so I follow this wonderful group on Instagram called Together We Rise. It's an advocate for foster care. And they had a little web up that, that detailed that there are 450,000 children in America 
in foster care, waiting to be adopted, waiting for, you know, forever parents. Okay, how, how do we manage this? I got to say, you know, when I look at the circumstances that some families find themselves in, I ask whether we're doing justice to children to put them in, you know, circumstances where they're taken away or where they don't have a family or where they shunt with a garbage bag over their shoulder from house to house to house where people are often housing them for cash if they're needed. How do we make all of this work in your vision? Well, the foster care system is a scandal. There's no excuse in this day and age for that system being as broken as it is. And here, the work of sound, sensible people like scholars at AEI and even your colleagues over at Brookings should work to correct that system. This is exactly the kind of public policy area where analysis, we're thinking it through, we're doing the proper studies, figuring out what broke the system, what can fix the system is, is important. So that work is to be done. Now, I begin from the premise that we don't kill people to solve problems. We don't solve the problem of a foster child by making sure that the foster child was killed or the potential foster child was killed in utero or at birth or anything like that. So I take that as baseline, that abortion is not the answer to those, uh, to those questions. But we don't just allow the child to be born and then put in a broken foster care system where all those pathologies that you've mentioned, Danny, are part of the course. Uh, adoption itself needs to be more efficient and it needs to be cheaper. We have a crazy situation where you have children waiting to be adopted and lots and lots of good adoptive parents, adoptive families waiting to adopt. But the thing's so gummed up and so expensive that we don't get child in need and parent in want together. That's crazy. It shouldn't be happening. There's no justification or excuse for, for it. So, you know, let's do the policy work. No reason it can't begin at AEI. It probably is being done there already. Let's do the policy work to fix this thing. So what you say should be the mission of the pro-life movement going forward. Now that we've had this great victory in Roe, overturning Roe, now it should be the policy goals of the pro-life movement should be to, to advance these initiatives. I agree with you. But the other, other mission... Well, I've been working, Mark, on these initiatives since 1994. Oh, I know you have. This is a pivot point now, I think, where we really need to like double down on those efforts. Oh, oh exactly right. I mean... Fix uh, all these problems, because if, if we want to convince Americans to join us in the pro-life cause... Now that this is a possibility, now that we have the possibility of restricting abortion, these elective abortions, uh, then we need to really double down on those things, don't you think? I absolutely do. And as I say, I've been working on this since the mid-1990s. I worked for two people who wanted to make that central to the pro-life mission. One was Mother Teresa of Calcutta, who I represented as counsel of record in a case called the Los case before the Supreme Court of the United States, where she submitted a brief uh, calling for Roe versus Wade to be overturned and where she pledged to work precisely to improve and reform the adoption system. And then the other person for whom I worked in those days was the Democratic governor of Pennsylvania, pro-life Democrat, they used to have such things, <laughs> Robert P. Yeah. Casey. And here again, Governor Casey's initiatives in Pennsylvania included reform of the foster care and adoption System. So this is not an idea that came up yesterday, nor is it a problem that people only began to notice yesterday. It's been around for a long time, which makes it all the more inexcusable and inexplicable that it continues to be as broken as it is. 
The other mission of the pro-life movement now, starting with this first weekend of post-Roe world that we're in, is to convince our fellow Americans, the ones you talked about, who see the overturning of Roe as a tragedy, who, who don't agree with us, of the sanctity of human life. Because I think all these different, when we get into all these debates over, well, should it be, should it be health of the mother, rape, incest, all the different things, if we don't start from the basis point of the sanctity of the unborn child, then we get nowhere in those debates. In the case of Danny, you have somebody here on our podcast who is, correct me if I'm misdescribing your position, but doesn't see abortion as a positive good, but as a necessary evil in some cases. Mark, I think there are very few people who see it as a positive good. Yes. So, so how, you know, how would you begin to convince someone like Danny or the millions of people who feel that way that it isn't, in fact, a necessary evil and that it is an evil? Well, I mean, since they assume it's an evil, they must think there's a reason for it being an evil. And at the end of the day, the only reason it's an evil is that it's the taking of an innocent human life, a living member of the species Homo sapiens, one of us. But how do we convince them of that? Robbie, because a lot of people don't agree with that. That's a straightforward biological question. Mm -hmm. We are not living in uh, antiquity or the Middle Ages when all we could do was speculate about where babies come from. I mean, they, they knew about sexual intercourse, but they knew nothing about embryogenesis or early human developmental biology. Uh, the best they could do, for example, in the case of Aristotle, was to speculate that possibly what ends up being born begins as essentially inanimate vegetative matter. It, it becomes animated, but not really yet quite rational and therefore human, and then later becomes rational. And that's what it's the best people could do up really through the Middle Ages and into the early modern period. The key moment here was 1827, when Carl von Baer discovered the mammalian ovum, and that gave rise to modern human embryology. That's when modern human embryology was born. And we realized the old Aristotelian theory or the idea that something that wasn't human later in gestation became human got exploded. And we came to understand what we know now is that that uh, you're, you're human from the beginning. The I don't know, what are you, Mark? Maybe 39-year-old Mark <laughs> Thiessen, uh, is the same human being who was the 22-year-old college student and the 16-year-old high school student and the precocious nine-year-old and the two-year-old toddler and the newborn infant and the seven-month fetus and the five-day-old embryo. Very same human being that develops seamlessly from the earliest embryonic into and through the fetal infant child and adolescent stages and ultimately into adulthood with his determinateness and unity and really identity fully intact. If we trace your biography back, we take it all the way back to the earliest embryonic stage called the zygote stage. That's all now established. There's no debate about the science. It's not that nobody knows when human life begins. It's not a matter of speculation. We've actually known uh, for a long time, even when Roe versus Wade was handed down in 1973, although there have been wonderful developments all confirming what we knew in 1973. We did know in 1973 uh, what we were dealing with from the earliest embryonic stage, and that is a living member of our species, a living individual human being. Now, okay, uh, so taking that life is an evil because we believe that human life is valuable. It's intrinsically valuable, not just instrumentally valuable. We believe as Americans, and those of us who are who are religious believe as Christians or Jews or Muslims that every member of the human family is a bearer of profound, inherent, and equal dignity. 
That's a core moral belief. So you put together the scientific facts, what we've got here from the earliest embryonic stage is a living member of the species, a human being, and the principle of the profound, inherent, and equal dignity of each and every member in the human family. And you get at a minimum to the idea that, man, killing that human being is a bad thing. Now, what makes it necessary for those who believe it's necessary? Well, here are all the problems. You know, sometimes it's unavoidable because the pregnancy itself poses a threat to the mother. The goal is not here to kill the child because the child is inconvenient or unwanted. It's that the embryonic child is developing, say, in the fallopian tubes. You've got an ectopic pregnancy and mother and child are both going to die unless you remove it. That's a tragic situation. But even the strictest ethical uh, thinkers and traditions uh, on this issue recognize that it's necessary in a case like that to perform the act that will inevitably result in the uh, death of the developing uh, child. And there are other cases like that. And then there are other things. There's poverty. There are all sorts of problems that women uh, face as a result of a pregnancy, sometimes because of the pregnancy itself, sometimes because uh, of the existence of a child once the child has been born. For some women, the problem is not the pregnancy. It's what do you do with a child or another child once the child has been has been born. And there we need to address the real problems. That's what I was talking about earlier. These are real problems that real women have, women in crisis, women in need, sometimes under tremendous pressure from boyfriends or husbands or parents or employers who put tremendous pressure uh, on women because it's inconvenient for them, for that woman to be having another child. Again, the problem's not the pregnancy. The problem is the existence of the, of the child. So we can address those. And then I would, I would reach out to, to good people on the other side of this issue and say, look, most people don't go along with the pro-abortion extremists who, who want abortion up until birth. That's a, an extreme position that the Democratic Party has now embraced because it's in the grip of its most extreme elements. It used to be safe, legal, and rare. Yeah, well, that's, yeah, safe, <laughs> safe not legal, and rare is gone. You're not allowed to say that anymore. In yeah. fact, pro-choice is gone. Planned Parenthood now has decided we need to shout our abortions. We need to get rid of the idea of choice. We need to say we're pro-abortion. You know, for decades they had said, we're not pro-abortion. No one's pro-abortion. We're just pro-choice. If you notice, they've now abandoned that. They've now thrown that out the window. They say that talking like that stigmatizes abortion, which is not a bad thing. So I would reach out to the reasonable people, Democrats, Republicans who are not with me 100% or with you, Mark, on this issue and say, okay, let's find the common ground where we can begin. Right now, the United States is in a league with only a small number of other nations in basically permitting abortion on demand all the way through gestation. In this club, we have you know not only China and Australia, but we have North Korea. I said China meant Canada and Australia. We have North Korea, we have China, we have some of the most repressive regimes in the world. Can't we at least move to something more like the standard Western European position where abortion, though it's permitted up to 12 weeks uh, gestation, is prohibited, except in those emergency situations, after, after 12 weeks? I mean, why should we have the Chinese and North Korean position on abortion? This is really crazy you know, where you're uh, licensing the killing of viable babies who could who could just be born, but you, you could induce birth 
and and save the baby. So I think we could probably get a lot of common ground uh, about that. There's no reason reasonable people of goodwill need to be on different sides of that issue. So again, you know, I, I'm very sympathetic to your argument about reasonable people. And I, and I do think, you know, it's obviously not just on questions of abortion. It's on questions of almost everything, on questions of race, on questions of, of, of gender identity, on questions of so many sociocultural things that we've all seen people stake out extremist positions and then seemingly drag the rest of their political cohort along with them. So let me ask you, though, in that vein, you know, women have staked out a position, you know, on the spectrum, on the pro-choice spectrum, and there are extremists and there are people who are, as you sort of laid out, where the vast mass of the world actually is, you know, 12 weeks, 15 weeks, things like that, which they still believe are acceptable. But yesterday, Justice Thomas, who I have nothing but the most respect for, said that now that Roe was dealt with, that rulings that established gay rights and contraception rights should also be reconsidered. Griswold versus Connecticut, Lawrence versus Texas, Obergefell versus Hodges. I first question the wisdom of him having said that in the first place, frankly, uh, at this very moment, because I think it was rather incendiary. But tell me, you know, first of all, legally, but also then socially, where you come down on this. Oh, sure, Danny. Roe has always presented two issues, and they are distinct. Obviously, they're related, but they are distinct. And it's done two sorts of harm from the points of view of its critics. On the one side is the moral question. Uh, and for critics there, it's that Roe exposes an entire class of human beings, the unborn, to the lethal violence of, of abortion. The other issue, though, is not on the moral side. It's on the legal side. It's the constitutional question. Roe has profoundly corrupted our constitutional law by permitting the courts to read their preferred policy judgments into the Constitution, claiming that they discovered rights there that are, in fact, nowhere to be fairly inferred from the text or logic or structure or historical understanding of the, of the Constitution. And some notable people who are on the pro-choice side on the moral question have nevertheless fiercely criticized Roe because of the damage it does to our constitutional law. It's shifting power. The Constitution vests in the democratic process in the legislative branch, state and federal, over to the judiciary. It represents the judicial usurpation of democratic legislative authority. Some notable figures here are the late John Hart Ely, Harvard Law School and then Dean of the Stanford Law School, who was pro-choice and, and in fact quite, quite to the left on that issue. He didn't mind as a policy matter the resolution of the issue in Roe. What he objected to Roe about and fiercely criticized and condemned Roe for was that it had no basis in constitutional law and therefore damaged the balance of authority as between the branches of the government. A contemporary writer who is similar to that in constitutional law is Akhil Amar of Yale Law School, strongly pro-choice, but against Roe precisely because Roe is such bad constitutional law. And bad constitutional law in a way that corrupts the constitutional structure by shifting authority vested in the Constitution in the legislative branches over to the judiciary. What Justice Thomas was talking about, Danny, in mentioning the cases that you mentioned 
was not the moral issue. He was talking about the legal and constitutional issue. And he was putting his focus on the doctrine known as the doctrine of substantive due process on which Roe was founded, but noted that the very same doctrine on which it was founded was used in Obergefell versus Hodges in order to impose on the country same-sex marriage in all 50 states, again, preempting the democratic process, and in Lawrence against Texas, which was the case having to do with uh, homosexual sodomy. Now, he mentioned Griswold against Connecticut. That is a bit of an outlier because that was not resolved on substantive due process grounds. In fact, Justice Douglas writing the majority opinion for the court, this was William O. Douglas in 1965, expressly held that he was rejecting the, the doctrine of substantive due process, not basing his decision on that, as some of the parties in the case had urged him to do, urged the court to do, but rather he claimed to find the right to contraception of married couples in what he called penumbras formed by emanations of various constitutional, especially Bill of Rights uh, guarantees. Well, from Justice Thomas's point of view, what Douglas did in Griswold against Connecticut was just did a substantive due process analysis while declining to label it as such, while coming up with some other account of it that had the same flaws as substantive uh, due process. Now, I think Justice Thomas is right that that kind of analysis, substantive due process analysis, does corrupt constitutional law. It shifts authority from the legislative branch where it belongs over to the to the judicial branch. If we're going to define uh, for the country uh, uh, what marriage is, not allow it to be done state by state, uh, under our constitution, that's really got to be done at the federal level by the legislature, by Congress, not by the states. And really strictly, at least as the constitution now stands, it's a state matter. It's not a federal matter at all. It's not a matter for the federal courts. It's not a matter for uh, for the for the Congress. So, you know, he's right on the constitutional question. He's right that those decisions lack, as Roe lacked, any basis in the text or logic or structure or historical understanding of the Constitution. There's a separate question on the moral side about whether the policies that they put in place are the right policies. Should we define marriage as man-woman? Should we define it as any two people, irrespective of sex? Should we define it polyamorously? Should we define it to include polygamy? Uh, just how should we define it? Thomas is right that that's a legislative judgment. It's not a judicial one. Though I think both Alito and Kavanaugh said in their opinion that, that this decision did not uh, put those those decisions in question. So I think regardless of the legal reasoning, it doesn't seem like there are there are a lot of people on the left are now saying next they're coming after gay marriage. They're coming after these things. There aren't the votes on the court to overturn Oberfell, right? are there? Well, well that, that's why the Thomas opinion is a concurrence. You know, and, and it's a concurrence in which no other justice joined. So, Robbie, I want to I want to ask you a question about going back to this whole question of the sanctity of life. Isn't the fundamental problem we face as we as we begin this discussion, national discussion post row objectification of human beings? So we, we were discussing before, how is it that so many men think that it's OK to forcibly rape a woman? And the root of that is, is that they see the woman as an object for their pleasure, as opposed to a human person with inherent dignity, right? And so it's okay to do that if you look at, the, at someone as an object. It's the same reason that justified slavery, that 
black people were objects and so therefore didn't have all the dignity and rights and inherent uh, dignity uh, as human beings. It's the same justification you see when you see genocide around the world in Rwanda, where they refer to certain tribes as cockroaches as opposed to opposed to human beings. Isn't this the same evil that we see in abortion, where we look at the human person and treat it as something as an object rather than a person created with the dignity and in the image of God? Mark, most people in most societies throughout human history have not embraced the principle that we as Americans embrace and that we as Jews and Christians embrace of the profound, inherent, and equal dignity of each and every member of the human family. That insight, which I regard as quite precious and hard to hang on to and hard to be faithful to and hard to be true to, is not the norm historically. It's not the norm across cultures. So it doesn't in the least surprise me that we have trouble ourselves keeping a grip on it. It's really the fruit, it seems to me, if we want to give it its historical analysis, if we want to want to see what its pedigree is, it's the fruit of a Jewish insight. And you get it at the beginning of Genesis chapter one. And whether you believe in scriptural revelation or not, even if you're not a believer, you can still see this insight being captured in the Jewish scripture that human beings are made in the very image and likeness of God. So however different we may be as different races, different cultures, different ethnicities, both sexes, people who are uh, strong and healthy, people who are weak and unhealthy, whatever the differences we have in strength and in beauty and everything else, that in the most fundamental respect, we're equal because we are children of God. We're made in his image and likeness. It's that insight that enables us to say slavery is wrong. Not just race-based chattel slavery, but the sort of slavery that has been practiced throughout history, even independent of racial issues, and that is the enslavement of conquered peoples. That was the norm. You had it in Rome, you had it in Greece, you had it everywhere. Now, how did we end up rejecting that? It's because of that basic Jewish insight that human beings are made in the image and likeness of God. They're not objects. They have an inherent and equal dignity. But as I say, when you recognize that for most of human history, most people and most cultures have not been able to understand that, have not gotten that, have not lived by that, it helps to explain why we fall away from it so often. We fell away from it over race, both with slavery and with Jim Crow. We fall away from it when it comes to abortion. We fall away from it in the way men treat women. We, we fall away from it in the way the rich treat the poor. Uh, we fall away from it all the time. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't strive to live up to it. On the contrary, when we fail, we have to pick ourselves up, dust ourselves off, admit our wrongdoing, admit our error and correct the situation and try to keep moving forward. We made progress by overthrowing slavery after 250 or more years. We made progress by finally ending the Jim Crow that descended uh, on black Americans after the abolition of slavery. Why well, don't see why we can't make progress in other areas as well? 
So Mark and I have plenty of time, both before our interview and afterwards to fight things out. But I, I want to put down a marker, Mark, that I, I think that your um, objectification description of abortion denies women the agency that they choose. I think women are actually making a choice when they have abortions. And it's, for many women, not an easy choice either. So, And I don't think that they're objectifying their unborn child. Uh, I think they're making a difficult choice uh, in many cases. Uh, hopefully a regretful choice, but still. But that's just me sticking my nose in. I want to ask a much more political question. Bring us down to the terrestrial ground of what's happening on the on the pages of the newspapers today. One of the things that was really um, a little bit interesting to me was Susan Collins and a couple of other senators coming out and really lambasting Kavanaugh and, and Gorsuch, although mostly Kavanaugh, um, for having lied to them that they would never overturn Roe versus Wade. <laughs> I, knowing them, I would think that they were shrewd enough not to have done that. But where, where do we come down here? How does this happen? Well, if Senator Collins or Senator Manchin asked one of those nominees to pre-commit himself to a decision one way or another in any case, including the question of reversing Roe versus Wade, then shame on them. Those nominees, as nominees had no right. In fact, they had an obligation not to commit themselves on cases that might come before them. And if they did commit themselves, then that is worse than lying. If they made promises to senators as to how they would rule in a case that they knew would come before them, in order to get those senators' votes, then it's not the lying that's the possible ground of impeachment. It's the promising to rule a certain way in return for a vote. Now, I know Neil Gorsuch, and I know he would never do that. Uh, as it happens, I don't know uh, Brett Kavanaugh, but I know people who know Brett Kavanaugh. I do know Brett Kavanaugh. I worked in the White House with him. He would never do it. He would never He would never do that. Yeah. Now, did they say Roe versus Wade is settled law? Most certainly. Every justice prior to Roe being overturned would say that. And may I explain why? By saying it is settled law, nobody means it can't be overturned by the Supreme Court. By saying it is settled law means that it is a precedent that is given the benefit of stare decisis, which means certain requirements or standards have to be met before it is reversed. It can't be treated as a de novo case. And secondly, it means that lower courts, the U.S., Circuit Courts of Appeal and the U.S. District Courts are bound to follow those precedents. That, Danny and Mark, is what it means to say it's settled law. And if if Joe Manchin didn't understand that or Susan Collins didn't understand that, then I believe they're both lawyers. They should return their law degrees. Uh, and if they're not lawyers, they need a little legal education because saying it's settled law is not a promise not to uh, overturn it. Now, by the way, if we're going to go there, then let's go back to the nomination of my friend, Elena Kagan, who was asked whether she thought there was a right to same-sex marriage in the Constitution. And she said no. And yet she voted to impose same-sex marriage on the country in Obergefell versus Hodges. So now are we going to say Justice Kagan lied? Are we going to call for impeachment hearings? No double standards, folks. Democrats want to play this game. The left wants to play this game. 
we play it all the way down. One standard applies to everybody. So exit question for me, Robbie. What do we do going forward in the pro-life movement? You're seeing a lot of trigger laws now that were in place where several states have abortion bans now in place once Roe fell. You see other states on the uh, blue blue states that are you know now moving to take steps to increase access to abortion. And does the pro-life movement need to take it slow right now? Because one of the things we said to people was we're going to leave it to the states. That was the argument, right? There's not going to be a ban on abortion nationwide overnight. And we we really have some hard work to do to convince people of our position now that the court has ruled. But a lot of people are really anxious to save unborn lives. And so they want to enact restrictions as, as much as they can. How do we balance the need to protect unborn life with the responsibility to do so in a way that's democratically sustainable by convincing people and moving hearts and minds as well? Well, first of all, while it is true that uh, there were people in the pro-life movement and uh, there were important legal figures who said that constitutionally this is exclusively a matter for the states, the most important of those was Justice Scalia. And of course, that's what Justice Kavanaugh says in his concurrence. I was not one of those people. I believe there's actually a role for the federal government, a role for Congress here exercising its authority in, under Section 5 of the 14th Amendment to enforce certain guaranteed minimums when it comes to uh, rights under the Due Process and Equal Protection Clauses of Section 1 of the uh, 14th Amendment. And I made that case, I filed an amicus brief on that, and I also made that case together with um, my co-author, Josh Craddock, in the Washington Post maybe two weeks, two weeks ago. It, it'll be easy to find. But having said all that, having said all that, I have always taken the view, and I continue to take the view, that there is nothing morally wrong with and much practically right with taking an incremental approach. At the end of the day, we need the American people to support the laws that we put into place. So we need to be doing advocacy and education People need to be made aware of the scientific facts, which, you know, I still find most people in 2022 don't know, you know, even pro-life people. I've laid them out in my book, Embryo, A Defense of Human Life, written with my co-author, Christopher Tollefson. But most people don't really know the facts about the developing human being. Uh, So I think we need to get that out. There's a lot of education that needs to be done. So I'd like to move incrementally. You know, in states where we can get strong protections for the unborn, let's do that. In states where we can't get strong protections for the unborn, let's get what protections we can for now, not cut off our noses despite our faces, get what we can for now, and then continue to do the education that will enable us to bring the public on. Lincoln said, I, I've been quoting Lincoln a lot lately, not only you know his malice toward non-charity uh, for all, but also his famous line that in the United States, public opinion is everything. With it, you can't lose. Without it, you can't win. So we have a sense of where the public is. The public is with Danny, for the most part, on this, sort of somewhere in the middle. They don't want unlimited abortion. They don't want the Democrats' extremism. But they aren't with you or me going all the way to full protection uh, for the unborn. We probably have about 40% of the public, but that's not yet a majority. So let's take people where they are. Let's get state by state until we can get the federal government involved, until we get Congress. Uh, Let's go state by state, putting what protections for the unborn uh, into place that we can and working in the states where we cannot get full protection or can't get strong protections 
to get what protections we can while we ramp up the educational uh, process. One thing we've got going for us here that I think we need to make better use of is sonography, the sonogram. Most parents today see the baby long before the baby's born. born. The first baby pictures are not of the newborn, uh, you know, uh, the, the naked baby on the white bear rug from, from my youth. Uh, uh, they are pictures of the, I was just talking to a new mother yesterday and she was telling me her first uh, sonogram came when the baby was just six weeks old, six weeks in development, six weeks gestation. So they pushed it further and further uh, back. There the technology is really getting good. Again, it's just confirming what we already knew from the science even before we had sonography. Uh, but boy, it's it's profound confirmation. I, um, you know, you can imagine uh, what attitudes are like uh, on this issue and other social issues where I live in Princeton, <laughs> New Jersey. So, uh, but nevertheless, despite my apostasies and my heresies, uh, I, I, I'm invited to people's homes for dinner and, and, and sometimes young colleagues or even uh, colleagues who have uh, grandchildren. I'll see when I walk into the kitchen carrying my bottle of wine as a house gift that there's a sonographic picture up on the, on the, uh, uh, refrigerator, sometimes more than one. And I'll, I'll point and I'll say, who's that? And here's this little, maybe four month or at most five month, uh, uh, fetus, this little embryo. And my colleague or uh, my colleague's spouse will say, Oh, that's Jenny. Ah, Jenny. I say, Jenny already has a name, this four month, five month, maybe even earlier, uh, developing fetus. If that's the word you, you, you prefer already has a name, already has an identity, already is being acknowledged as human as she certainly should be because that's exactly what they are. And I think this creates a kind of cognitive dissonance because those same colleagues, for the most part, think it would be okay to kill Jenny. They don't want to put it that way. They would object if I put it that way, but A follows B. If that's Jenny at say four months, and you're saying I'm pro-choice through six months or eight months or nine months, then you're telling me it should be a choice whether to kill Jenny. That doesn't that doesn't work. That that just creates too much cognitive dissonance. And I think we have to take advantage of that cognitive dissonance to help bring people along, to accompany people so that they can see the the logic of their recognition of the humanity of their child or their grandchild. This has been a great conversation, Robbie. First of all, you are beyond generous talking to us on the weekend, beyond generous taking time out of it, especially when you're traveling so soon. But also, I really, uh, I do appreciate your being thoughtful, you know, as you rightly appreciate it. I don't, I don't agree with everything here. And I do think that there's a lot, there's a lot of struggle for a lot of women who are pro-choice, not pro-abortion, I hope. But this is the right way to have a conversation about it. It's not to accuse people of being murderers or being, you know, abusers or being fascists or being communists. It's good to have an intelligent conversation and you were the best person to have it with. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Danny. And we have to remember this, this is a dispute in the family. This is a dispute that we Americans have with each other. And we're fellow Americans. We're fellow citizens. We're not enemies. If I can quote Lincoln yet again, he says in the first inaugural address, we are not enemies, but friends. We must never be enemies. And when we have a dispute in the family, we work it out in a 
honest, respectful dialogue. And, and I appreciate you and Mark inviting me on to, to have that dialogue. Thank you so much for joining us, Robbie. Thank you. Bye-bye. So, Danny, one of the things that's changed here since the decision on Roe is that we're going to have to actually have to discuss these things now, all of us around the kitchen tables, around uh, in, in our conversations, other people are going to have to do it. We can't shove this off and say, well, it's been decided by the Supreme Court because now this is in the political sphere. And so we're going to have to have discussions, hopefully discussions like the one we just had with Robbie, where they're done in a spirit of charity and openness and, and kindness. But I think the fundamental thing that we, at least on my side and the pro-life side, our job to do is, I mean, Robbie made a very compelling case that if, you know, Democrats always say we you know, trust the science, believe the science. He made a very compelling case that the science is absolutely clear that an unborn child is, is a human being. And we have a responsibility now to convince our fellow Americans about the humanity of the unborn child. That's that's the, the debate that we need to have. Is it a child or is it not? Because if it isn't a child, then you can do anything you want to it. And if it is a child, then that makes it a much more complicated question. And so, so Mark, we need to I address think, those I th- things. I, th- I agree. Look, I do think that, you know, you can't say I believe in the science uh, on uh, vaccines and love Dr. Fauci and not believe in the science of your own sonograms. Yep. And, you know, as we know from the increased sophistication of, the, of these you know, tools that are used during pregnancy, there's no question that what is gestating in a woman is a child. I think that what you have here is an honest and a difficult debate that women and sometimes women in partnership with their their partners their spouses with their families with their you know with their their church or synagogue have about their needs and their rights and their lives mm-hmm. over the life of this unborn child and for a lot of women you know, the choice is hard but at the same time they recognize that they can't do right they can't do right or they won't do right. Now, I know what you're going to say, and we discussed it with Robbie. You know, I say 450,000 children in the United States of America in foster care is a national shame. And, uh, you know, it it makes you want to cry, honestly, to see not only how these children have no parents, but how society has abandoned them. Some of these kids go through foster care their entire life. Now, you don't want to turn to one of them and say, hey, you know, don't you wish your mother had aborted you? Because obviously that's that's not how you want to have this conversation. But I do think that women deserve to have some consideration in this conversation. They are the ones that carry the child. They are the ones that are responsible for the child. They are ultimately the ones that have to do all of the work, and they do not deserve to be dismissed out of hand as something that weighs absolutely nothing in the face of this other human life. No one, no one is, I don't think anybody is saying that they should. Well, but um, there is but, an implication know, of but, that no, in this debate. I don't debate. think it is. Um, so a couple of things. Number number one, the fact, I agree with you, the fact that there's 450,000 kids in foster care in this country is a scandal. The solution is to fix the foster care system and to have more support for women, to have more options for women to keep their children and to support those children when they're born. We have to have a culture of life that doesn't end at at the end of pregnancy. It has to extend beyond pregnancy. Uh, So that's number one. But again, the big problem is as we weigh all those challenges that, that are real that women face is it's a child. Well, but the woman is a human being as well. I understand, but but the solution to those problems is in, it can't be in a civilized society to kill the child. It just can't. And we have to realize, I mean, I think one of the things Robbie said was he talked about the book of Genesis, how we are all, every single one of us is 
created with inherent dignity because we're created in the image of God. And even if you're, even if you're not religious, yeah, indeed. Okay, even if you're not religious, go to our Declaration of Independence. All all men are created and equal, endowed with certain inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We are all. Every single human being has dignity. I'll tell you, that, Danny. I I th- I think you are a click away from being with me on the pro life cause, and I'll tell you why. Because I know you. Um, <laughs> and I I know I know your heart for children. I have seen you cry looking at the picture of Syrian children washed up on the shore trying to escape the Assad regime. I know that's why you're a neocon because you think that the dignity of the human person has to be central to our foreign policy, not just peripheral. I know what you did for a family of Afghan children who came over to this country, and not many people realize what that, you literally took them under your wing and helped them get assembled. You believe you're pro-life in every aspect of your life except this, entirely. And you're more pro-life, and you're very pro-life in the first, you know, up until 15 weeks. So we're talking about a very, very short period of time here. Concerns of women are there in the debate, what hasn't been in the debate is the concerns and the interests of the child. Well, and but we I mean, to, the, the 18 states have the concerns of the interests yeah. of the child ha- at heart. But, That's, but now, uh, we're creeping we, up on, you know, 40 percent of our states. Of, now, because of this decision, we can bring the interests of the child into that discussion and have a national conversation over how, how we balance those challenges. Well, but also, you know, I think the other place where the pro-life movement falls down is, is all right, you know, you want women to carry children to term? What are you doing for women who they are carrying children? To they do a lot. They're crisis pregnancy centers throughout this country where they provide they, they provide care for women. They provide support after birth. I mean, the pro-life movement has been very, very – it doesn't get a lot of attention because they like to be demonized in the mainstream media. Pro-life and churches do tons and tons of stuff to help women after, after birth. I don't think anybody should suggest that it's an easy debate. And I don't think anybody should suggest that these are easy decisions, but I don't think they're easy decisions for a lot of women either. I know there are women for whom this is an easy decision, but I would say not the majority. And, but, well, but here's the thing also, keep in mind, that the vast majority of abortion, we always, like to, we always focus on the hard exceptions, the, the, the hard cases. The vast majority of abortions in this country are elective abortions. And they're not because of rape or incest. They're not because of that there's a woman who's in a terrible situation, it's like, like some people are. The vast majority of these abortions shouldn't be happening at all because they're, they're, they're elective abortions that are not related to those things. So we should take some of that off the table and have a discussion about the hard cases. Right. And, and of course, most of these states don't actually make exceptions for the hard cases either. They don't make exceptions for rape or incest. They don't even make exceptions in some instances for the life of the mother. I don't know any state that doesn't do that. There's no one in the pro-life movement who doesn't support exceptions for the life of the mother. And the reason for that is very simple, is that from a moral standpoint, the question is, what is the aim of the act, right? Is the aim to end the life of the child or is it to save the life of the mother, right? And so it's, it's morally licit to take a step that will end the life of the child because the objective is to save the life of the mother. Rape is, is, a, is a much harder case because you've obviously had a great injustice done to a woman, but the child is innocent too. And so, it's, it, and so that becomes a very complicated issue and a very hard, hard issue that most people don't, haven't thought through and don't want to think through because it's unpleasant. But we have to now include the interest of the child in that discussion because it's not just a simple open and shut case. A woman's been raped so the baby dies. It's, that, it's not that simple. 
There's a, there's a human life involved, and people need to think about that and discuss it. Well, I know, look, you know, Mark, again, and we should end here because we're just going to toss this football around forever, but I do respect your perspective. I do, and I appreciate the fact that you respect mine even though you disagree with me, as I disagree with you. Although, you know, I, and, and one thing I've tried to say to people is this is very, very much a, a view that evolves among women. You know, when you're younger, you were pro-choice. I was more pro-choice when I was younger. I am less pro-choice than I was. I'm still pro-choice. But I think a lot of people see the balance because they are, because when you're young, your life is a life of selfishness. It's yeah. about you. And when you get older, you recognize that it's not just about you. It's about everything else. But what we need to have is more decent debate, more less name-calling, more respect for people's deeply, profoundly held views, because most of the people who come to this do not come to it from a bad place. They come, to a, they come to it from a good place. It is just the loudmouth name callers who sully the good name of decent political debate in this country, and I wish they would shut the fuck up. You know, it's interesting. <laughs> we, were having, we were having the discussion with Rabia, and I used the wrong word. I talked about objectification, but right. it's really the root of all evil in our society is dehumanization. I mean, almost every evil that happens around us comes from dehumanization, from sexual abuse, which treats a woman as an object for pleasure, to murders in the streets where people see people as just objects worthy to discard, all the way up to genocide. The Holocaust, the Jews were subhuman. In Rwanda, where one tribe was, was, was considered cockroaches. Like that. Everything that, ha- that, that we do that is evil to each other is rooted in dehumanization and treating people as objects rather than as human beings with inherent dignity and worth just by their existence. The difference in abortion from all those other cases I just cited is that the murderers and the rapists and the butchers and the genocidal dictators are evil men doing evil things. They know what they're doing is evil, and they do it anyway. In the case of abortion, there's an evil being done by good and decent people who are in difficult situations and are not cognizant of all of why this is why this is wrong. This is why, for example, in crisis pregnancy centers, the number one thing that they do is asking everyone, every woman who comes in to consider abortion to look at a 3D sonogram of their child because they find that if you look at that sonogram and you see your child you won't abort it. In most cases, it happens. And so we have a situation with abortion where we need to convince people who are in these difficult positions of the sanctity of the child that they're carrying, that they're not bad people. They just don't, they just don't realize uh, what, what, what a sacred well, thing they, they have. I think they, I think they do realize, Mark. Not, I, I, think, I, think, I think they do realize, and I think they're making, and this is why it was at least once called the pro-choice movement, I think they're making a choice. Yeah. And, you know, I think the argument that you're making is that that choice is to end a human life, and, and they would say it is to continue my life as I wish to and have autonomy over my body. I find the autonomy over my body argument a little bit, a little bit difficult, but again, Why? you and I are not going to stop. Well, well, again, because you know we understand that, that you know we understand that that you are talking about lives here, not about just about cells. Yeah. In any case, in well, any case, folks, we're we sure you have opinion. We're sure we you have opinions as well. Don't hesitate to share them with us nicely if you don't mind. But always, uh, always welcome. We're really looking forward to hearing from you. And thanks for being with us. Take care. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. 
Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.